This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So knowing how to do that in, the, in these everyday sort of mini crises prepares you for the big event. Because when that big thing happens and there could be blood on the floor, shots ringing out, whatever it is, you can stop, take those three deep breaths, calm and center yourself a little bit. Then you can begin to lead proactively. Hi, welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. Today, we have Eric McNulty on talking about his book, You're It. We've had Eric on before with the National Preparedness Leadership Institute over at Harvard, uh, talking about his programs we had for leadership. Eric is a thought leader and profound writer in the space of emergency management, and I'm really excited to have him on talking about this new book. Eric, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thanks, Todd. Glad to be here. I really should say welcome back to Ian Weekly. This is our second time having this conversation, and I'm excited to have you on again. Well, I'm glad to be back. You reach a, an important audience that does great work, and so I'm always happy to be here. So this time around, we're excited to have you back on to talk about your new book, uh, You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters the Most. So, well, congratulations on your new book, by the way. Thank you. It's been uh, a lot of work over several years, and we're really happy to see it in the shelves. So one of the things I, I like about the, uh, the introduction with your book is the idea that today you might be doing one job, and then at the snap of a finger, you're in a crisis situation. And when we're talking about the crisis situation, it might not just be that large-scale disaster. It could be after shooter. It could be a, a, a crisis for your business. So it's not just emergency management related, it, it, although that's kind of the focus. So tell me about your process with this book and, and what you're trying to get at. Well, Todd, you hit, it, you hit the nail on the head. That it is true for more and more people today in that, a moment, things can change, and you are it. You're the one people look to for answers, for direction, for confidence, for reassurance in some cases. And you're right. The situations can, can vary widely. Uh, it can be a natural disaster. It could be an active shooter. It could be a Me Too incident. When someone comes into your office and tells you some unfortunate news, and if you haven't thought about how you're going to deal with that one, that can throw even seasoned emergency managers into, into the basement, as we say. Uh, it could be a financial incident. It, it could be all kinds of things. We're in, we live in a very turbulent time. And the reason we went about writing the book was that what we've learned over our 15 years of teaching at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard is that a lot of people wind up in quote-unquote leadership positions because of their technical expertise. They've done really well at the nuts and bolts of their job. And I don't want to take anything away from doing that work really well. But they're expected to lead, and no one's quite told them how or given them tools or given them ways to figure things out. Uh, and so what we're hoping here is to, in some ways, duplicate what those people who have come through our programs at Harvard have seen, which is here's some practical, pragmatic ways to understand what's happening with yourself and with others to really 
be able to decode a situation to understand what's really going on and what needs to be done, and then how to build connectivity. Because in a crisis situation, no matter what the crisis is, rarely do you act alone. You act with others. So how do you build connectivity with your team, with your boss, with other agencies and organizations, even with the general public? And so that's what we hope we've done here is lay out through the book is with some good stories about how it's done, but also the tools and techniques to say, here's how you can do it as well. So can we prepare for a crisis like this and can we practice for it? I think you can because we, we have, we all have, you know, crisis is a strong word, but we all have events in our lives virtually every day that cause the panic reaction that we call going to the basement or others have called uh, big deal hijack. Someone cuts you off on the highway, for example, or your boss walks in and says, we've got to cut overhead by 10%. Um, something can happen. You, know, you lose your keys even as you're racing out to an important appointment and you feel that panic sensation. You know, the person cuts you off on the highway. You don't react calmly. You beep the horn and you may extend a, a digit in their direction. <laughs> because you get this sort of triple F freeze flight fire response kicks in. And it happens to all of us whenever there's a perceived threat. It's a basic instinctual response hardwired into us as humans and in other mammals as well. So understanding that and how to counteract it, which you can do by anything that demonstrates self-competence. Uh, so three deep breaths, counting to 10, making coffee, going to your practice protocols that you've put together for your in your part of your emergency response plan. Those things that you know how to do, that resets your brain almost like rebooting a computer. So knowing how to do that in the, in these everyday sort of, sort of mini crises prepares you for the big event because when that big thing happens and there could be blood on the floor, shots ringing out, whatever it is, you can stop, take those three deep breaths, calm and center yourself a little bit, then you can begin to sort of lead proactively. And the same thing is true of, of understanding what's going on in the situation, which the second, is the second dimension of our model. If you can learn to ask smart questions and to really listen and to look for patterns in your everyday interactions with people, you'll be better prepared to do it when the real crisis hits. So, yes, these are things you, you – know, what we have found is that crisis leadership is not a different set of skills. It's the same skills you do every day when you're doing things well, but taken to a higher level. You know, one analogy I have used, you know, we've all been watching the comeback of Tiger Woods. If you look at Tiger and a weekend golfer, they both use roughly the same equipment. They both play 18 holes. They both use the same size ball. But the weekend duffer is not Tiger Woods. Tiger plays that game at a much higher level. Using the same, playing by the same rules. And all the same things that that weekend golfer is doing, but doing it at a much higher level. And that's what we think differentiates the, the really strong leaders, both in routine and in crisis situations, is they focus, they work, they practice, so that they are able to play their best game ever, whether it's, let's say, in an everyday interaction or when that big crisis hits. When I think of the crisis leader, um, I think of Sully uh, from the plane crash in Houston, or Houston, in, uh, in the Hudson. Um, yes. You know, walking through that checklist, how did he, and I'm not asking you to get into his head, but just kind of knowing how you analyze things, how do you think he was able to really lead his crew through that uh, process? Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, the checklist is a big part of it, and that's why pilots are trained that way. <clears throat> so that when things started to go south, and he knew relatively quickly from 
everything that I've read and heard, that there was a serious problem. He knew what to do. And this is that same process I just described of, okay, go to the checklist. If that light, light is blinking, what do I do? I rehearse that. I know what to do. That helps you be calm. And when you're calm, you respond in a more measured way. And when those around you see that you are calm, they tend to get calm as well. Uh, we have what are called mirror neurons in our brains. So we tend to mirror each other's behavior. So if you see someone panic, you're more likely to panic as well. But if you see someone who's calm, then you're more likely to be calm too. But what Sully did in that situation was he said, you know, he, he knows how to fly an aircraft. He knows that aircraft well. He knows how it works. He knows what the instruments do, what the different controls do. It's a matter of trying to keep your head about you and come up with the best possible outcome. So he quickly had to figure out, no, he can't turn this around. He can't get to Teterboro. He's going to have to bring this thing down someplace. The Hudson River's wide enough. Planes float for at least a little bit. And he had to make that call. Um, but then you can do that much more with much more confidence when your wits are about you, when you've, again, done the steps to reset the amygdala hijack, go to what you know how to do. And once you start doing what you know how to do, even if it isn't the perfect thing, you can then adapt more easily. And, that, and that's what he did. And that's what we've seen in, in other incidents as well. So when I teach about responding to an active shooter at the college where I work and I discuss the concept of already having that plan in your head to do the, uh, if you will, used in Boyd's OODA loop uh, to, to know where you're going, analyze the situation, and then go back and act again. Um, is this the same thing that we're talking about here with the with your concept of you're it, or is it a little bit more deeper than that? It, it, it's very similar. In fact, we've got something in the book we call the pop doc loop, which is built on Boyd's work in the OODA loop. Uh, and we looked at it and said, okay, Boyd did, did amazing work, and his, his work is still used to train most fighter pilots around the world. However, that's built for the environment of a cockpit and someone working generally alone or with a very small crew. The pop doc loop similarly gets you through a series of steps. In our case, it's perceive, so start bringing in data, gathering what do you think is happening, orient, so what does that mean? Is that pop, pop, pop shots, or is it a truck backfiring? Um, once you begin to orient, look for patterns, you can then predict what's going to happen next. And if you're predicting, that tees you up to make a decision. That's the, the D of the doc. Operationalize it because your brain has to operate a little bit differently to make a decision versus carrying it out. And then communicating. Because as a leader, you're worried about the people around you as well. So are you communicating clearly? And going through that loop helps keep you centered. So, yes, I mean, you think of an active shooter we, you know, there's some controversy over it now that most of us have learned run, hide, fight, which gets you to the first thing you're going to do is try and assess, can I run, where can I run? You're thinking about that. If you can't run, okay, I know what to do, hide. And we've interviewed people who were in active shooter situations who were able to hide under a desk, under a box, whatever, and that kept them alive. And then only if you uh, are found out and you have no choice do you try and engage someone who's probably, you know, better armed than you, better armored than you as well, do that. Um, and so that kind of rehearsal, just like you know, we've all been doing fire drills since we were in grade school. And that you know, when you hear the klaxon go off, you know you walk down the stairway and where your muster point is. And that knowing what to do helps calm you down and helps you take productive steps. So r rarely do we jump out of our steam. We're shocked for a moment when we hear that fire alarm go off. 
But then if we don't smell smoke, we think, okay, it's a fire alarm or it's a a fire drill. We know what to do and we go do it. And most people can execute on that uh, pretty well. So you're absolutely doing the right thing, getting people to think about it ahead of time of what are you going to do and have those basic steps in mind. All right. So I want to get a little more into into your writing. Let's talk about the meta leadership. What exactly is that and how did you come up with it? So meta leadership, the meta prefix is about taking a very broad view of what's happening uh, and not getting stuck in the weeds and thinking about what's happening now and what's going to happen next. And so we put that meta prefix in, in front to differentiate this in a way from other leadership work. And there's much value in that work, but it, most of what we've seen does not encompass the full range of challenges that a leader faces. About 85% of the leadership literature is really focused on uh, leading down, what we call leading down to your, to your team or your troops, to you as the boss in a hierarchical situation. And that's an important, that's one facet of it, but it's not the only one. So our model has three dimensions. It starts with you, the person. Who are you? How well do you know yourself, know your emotional composition? How emotionally intelligent are you? You understand uh, what, push, what, what buttons you have that people can push. Do you understand, and if you taught yourself how to react in crisis, can you maintain some emotional control and regulation? The second dimension, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is the situation. You are leading in a context. Is it a life or death situation? Is it a financial calamity? Is it things are going fine? You know, uh, behavior is a function of a person and their environment. It's a basic principle of social psychology. So if you want to understand how you and others are going to behave, you have to look at who they are as a person and what's the environment in which they find themselves. And that will give you a great clue as to what's happening and what you need to do. The third dimension is connectivity. Because as I mentioned, you know, leaders, unless you have someone to lead, you're not leading. So it's a relationship between leaders and followers. And so understanding what's the connectivity you need. Uh, we, you know, we've seen in responses that with Boston Marathon bombing here in, in, in our hometown was one a very dramatic example of leaders working really well together. And, they, and it was no accident. They had practiced and trained for years to get good at working with each other. So when that when the bombs went off, the different law enforcement agencies, EMS, fire, even the civilian uh, and the nonprofits involved in the, in the race worked really well together under very tense circumstances because they had built that connectivity. And other, uh, other uh, responses we've seen that have not gone so well, you see infighting, you see turf battles, you see you know, sharp elbows and who's in charge, uh, and things don't go so well. You've got very broken connectivity. So what we have found is that if you, if you just keep those three things in mind when you're leading in a crisis, okay, the person, am I okay? Am I centered? If I take in my deep breath, am I, if I centered myself cognitively and psychologically, do I understand what's going on around me? Am I asking questions? Am I figuring out what's happening? And then have I engaged the different people and organizations I need in order to get to the, the best possible outcome? That's a great guide. Uh, and it can be, you know, it's not, it's not hard to remember. So if you're in a tough situation, you can remember those three dimensions as a, the beginning of a checklist to get yourself going. Do good leaders need to have the technical expertise in order to lead their group? I don't believe so. They need the respect of their group. 
which is different than having the technical expertise. Uh, it's funny, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day uh, about being put in charge of a group where you don't have as much technical expertise. Actually, it can be a great advantage. The thing you need to lead is to understand people and group dynamics and what makes people tick, what motivates them, be able to diagnose the relationships between them. Those are the things you need to create unity of effort to create a really cohesive team that can move forward together. I think it's actually best if you are leading a team to always assume that you're not the smartest person at the table and then be looking for the other people to call on their expertise, to help them build their expertise. Um, because again, if, if, if someone is in that leadership position and is trying to do every job or second guessing decisions, that only degrades team performance. Um, as a leader, you need to be getting people to do their best. And one, some of the things we've learned through research are that, uh, Three big drivers of psychological satisfaction at work and that lead to high performance. One is competence, feeling like you know what you're doing. So if your boss is not second-guessing you, you have a higher degree of competence, you feel like you, you can, you're trusted for the job. The second is autonomy. People like to be able to make decisions and take action on their own. That's how they demonstrate their competence. And the third one is relatedness. They like to be part of a good team. So as a leader, you are trying to create that unity of purpose you're trying to create positive dynamics within the team, and if there's something not gelling, to be able to fix it. And help everyone around you succeed. If you do those things, you don't need to be the technical expert. You can be the person who helps each of them demonstrate their, their technical expertise at a high level and achieve a good outcome. So we're going to take a quick break right now, and when we come back, I want to talk about the, uh, the unofficial leaders, the the leaders of the locker room, if you will. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that quick break. Thank you so much for uh, listening. And, and please reach out to the sponsors and, and let them know that you heard them here on Ian Weekly because without them, you know, we really can't do what we do. So, Eric, before I, we went out to the break, I, I just talked about the, the unofficial, the locker room leader, if you will. How do we utilize those um, leaders that might not be uh, a leader in an official capacity, say by title? Yeah, it's a really great question, and it's a topic that I have a particular passion for. Uh, in fact, I just wrote a piece for Strategy and Business. It was published last week, uh, so that was early May, for those of you who are listening now. And it said, don't be a leader. And by that, I meant this quotes around that leader. Um, we should really need to stop thinking about leader as a position and thinking about it as a set of behaviors. And when you do that, you can lead from wherever you are. Those are those locker room leaders. So you may not be the coach, you may not be the quarterback, but you're the person who can get that team rallied up and ready to go and maybe out of, out of, the, out of the dumps when they haven't had a good first quarter or first half, uh, depending on the sport. But when we think of it as behaviors and we think of leading as a verb as opposed to leader as a noun, it becomes a much more dynamic and to me much more interesting concept because... Anyone can do it. 
And a lot of people should be doing it if the situation calls for it. If you need someone to be leading, someone needs to step up and do it, and they can't wait for that person with the bigger title. And frankly, uh, in many organizations, I've seen people achieve very high rank who are not very good at leading. They may have been technically competent, and that's what the system rewarded. In some cases, they were good brown nosers and knew how to work the politics, so they got promoted. Uh, sometimes they were just good, for example, at the financial piece of things, and that was appropriate at a time, and so you know, this is more in the private sector. But someone who was you know, terrific at that, um, terrific at making, uh, making the bottom line pay off, and they wind up at a very senior position, but who aren't very good with the human factors, had good at understanding themselves and, and the people around them, and creating that spirit of, hey, hey we're doing this together, and we're going to do great things. Uh, and so... I think if we can make that shift from leading or leader as a noun, shifting to leading as a verb, that's a great step. And then to realize all that we do in emergency management, it is a team sport. And you need everybody on that team performing well. And different people are going to lead at different times. And that happens in virtually every, every sport out there, to use you know, the sport analogy. I don't care what it is, any team sport. Um, you need people to be playing their position well, and at times they step up and they lead. And even though you're in a more senior position, you may follow them because it's the it's appropriate way to get to the best possible outcome. One of the things that I, I really am attuned to, and it's through the training that we had, uh, that I had in the military, and then also um, you know some people who are writing about these things as well are, are, are kind of bringing it up as well, is allowing your team to fail because we learn more from our failures. How do we get people to really understand that and embrace that concept? Well, you have to make it safe to fail. And of course, we're not talking about catastrophic failure. We don't want people to die because you failed. But to be trying new things, to have, a, to have safe spaces to experiment, to even celebrate failures when you've learned from them. There's a gentleman I know in, in, in the Netherlands works for one of the big banks there. He started something called the Institute for Brilliant Failures, where they actually honor and venerate those people who tried something new, failed, but helped the bank develop, build its knowledge into how to do things smarter next time. Because um, you're right, we, we humans only, no, we don't only, but we largely learn through failure. You know, none of us learn to walk by standing up and getting it perfect the first time. We had to fall down several times. And if you're afraid to take chances, you don't do anything new. You become very risk-averse. And research has shown you actually will perform less well. So Amy Edmonds and my, coll my colleague over at the Harvard Business School has written a book called The Fearless Organization. And she talks about a concept of psychological safety. And that is an environment where you feel safe to express your opinions, try something new, admit it when you've made a mistake. And in her research she did with medical teams, she found that those teams where it was more, people were more open to discussing their mistakes made fewer mistakes. Now just think about that for a second. When you can talk about your mistakes, you make fewer mistakes because everyone has a chance to learn from when things go wrong. Aviation safety that we talked about earlier with Sully. There was a time when you would be penalized for near misses, so people would not report them. And they, the industry discovered and the pilots worked toward 
being able to to report near misses or mistakes that weren't catastrophic, and they were not penalized for them because of the way the system got smarter, and we have a safer aviation system because of it. So, I think that as the as emergency managers are, are practicing their craft, you want to always give people the opportunity to stretch. Again, not only when a life is on the line, but in other less daunting circumstances, get people used to trying something. And as long as you figure out what went wrong and why you won't, why it won't happen again, that's actually a win. That's a win. That's get that's gaining knowledge. You've now built up your knowledge base, your ability to do things. So you've actually turned a negative into a positive. I actually had one of my uh, students uh, call me the other day, and uh, she was going in for a, uh, a class that she's doing with FEMA right now, and uh, she's gotten tapped on the on the nose to be the uh, the EOC manager for a drill, and she's kind of freaking out. And I told her, I said, look, at the end of the day, no one's really going to die, so if you go through and you make mistakes, take those notes and, and learn from those, and this is where you want to make those mistakes, and you're not going to fail the class. Absolutely, but there has been a tradition, sadly, of not everybody, and uh, but certain organizations would do drills, and the point was to get a perfect score, right. and that was where they considered a successful successful drill. Oh, look at how good we are! And I think anytime you're doing a drill or an exercise, if you get a perfect score, you didn't work hard enough at the drill or the exercise. That scenario was not tough enough. It always ought to push you to the point where you're at the brink of failure, or you've started to stumble. Because again, as you just mentioned, that's how you figure out what you would do in, in, in real life. Because in a real crisis, things are going to pop up unexpectedly. Things are not going to go exactly as planned. We can guarantee that. So you've got to be able to figure things out on the fly. So it's better that you make mistakes, as you said, in an exercise environment. But if you can't make a mistake in an exercise environment, when are you going to make it? Right. And so you, <laughs> you don't get to learn until the real thing is in front of you. And it could be a situation where, again, people get hurt or killed. You know, I, I I tell the story before, and those of you listening to the uh, to the podcast will will have heard this. That I was doing an exercise with uh, someone, and when we did the after action report, um, I put in some of the the areas where they need to improve, and they they asked me to take those areas out because they were like, oh well, we're we're going to have to fix that, and we're going to get in trouble if we don't fix it. And I'm like, well, it's not the whole purpose of why we're... It was a fire drill exercise, actually. And uh, the, the, the problem was the audible alarm sounded like a buzzer from a, from a dryer, is what we were told. And uh, they, they actually asked us to take that out of their, their exercise. And, and I, I walked away from that thinking, why do we do these exercises, find areas that need to be improved, but yet don't want to put the money into it to fix those areas that want to be improved. And I think this is where we fail sometimes as emergency managers and as policymakers for that matter of not taking these exercises seriously and learning from the mistakes. Absolutely. You know, it's one of the most illuminating stories I, I picked up while we were preparing for the book, and it, it's in the book, is um, from a managing partner of an investment bank in New York called Santa O'Neill. His name is Jimmy Dunn. And we, his firm lost quite a number of people on 9-11. They were in the towers, which is why I was there talking to him, which is a separate story, but very instructive. But after I'd interviewed him, he gave me a tour of their trading floor. I'm not sure if you've ever been on a, an investment bank trading floor, but it's of a sea of people it's like an EOC on steroids because everyone's got three screens and four phones, and it's frenetic activity as people are trading on these global markets. 
And I turned to him and I said, Jimmy, how do you manage this? This is just like, you know, it looks like chaos, but it's a lot of things, a lot of people doing a lot of things simultaneously. And he said, rule number one is bad news finds me fast. You will never get fired here for making an honest mistake, but you'll get fired in a heartbeat for making one and trying to cover it up. Because the faster I find out about the mistake that's been made, the faster I can help you fix it and protect the customer whose money we, we may be losing. Mm. And to me, that was such a simple principle, but he, it was clear, and you know, he, he was a guy who said, you'll, you'll, you'll get in big trouble if you don't admit the mistake. If you admit it, that's okay. You may not be happy that you just lost a million dollars or whatever, but if it was an honest mistake, you were doing what you thought you should do the way that you've been trained to do it. They weren't going to blame you. That's the system. That's the markets. That's whatever it is. Let's fix it. And to me, that's such a refreshing way to run a business or run an operation. But so often we get people who are afraid to speak their mind or afraid to say something that's going on because they're afraid of getting yelled at. And as you say, it's going to, you know, there's negative consequences for pointing out what's not perfect. When you're writing this book, what are the three biggest takeaways that you took away from it? Um, I think the first one is, and what, what, part of why I love writing is I get to interview a lot of smart, interesting people, and I there are some amaz- so many amazing people doing good work out there in emergency management, in related fields, in, in other fields as well, in facing crises. And, and I, so I learn I learned a tremendous amount from from this process, and I think there are examples all around us of people who are doing good work, interesting work, people from whom we all can learn. So I think the first takeaway is there's just there's a, a lot for us all to learn, so we need, you never stop learning. I think the second takeaway was, or is, that it's incredibly helpful for people to have a framework with which to organize what they're doing. Uh, and I don't claim that meta-leadership is the perfect framework or the ultimate framework, but person after person who had been through programs, who was familiar with that model, talked about how it just helped them organize, and not just what we had taught them, but what they had learned through other reading, other programs, in the military or in law enforcement, uh, what they had learned in life. And having just a simple way to, to organize it, to make sense of it, helped them be much more effective. And third, and perhaps this is most important, is at the end of the day, this is all about people. I don't care how sophisticated the protocols get or how fancy the technology we deploy or how much money we spend on things. At the end of the day, this is about people. This is the people who are serving, the people they are serving. And the work that all of us do is about trying to make our community safer, make them more resilient, make them better places to be. And in a, in a world where you, you know, turn on the news, you get a lot of uh, depressing stories one after another. It was incredibly buoying to me um, to be able to encounter and help document so many people who are just doing good things in the world. And they look at their, their people next to them and say, hey, those are my neighbors. I want to help them. There's some people I don't even know, but I want to go help them. And, uh, and that, to me, gave me a lot of hope for the future and a lot of optimism. For those of you that have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that myself and then uh uh, my buddy Brian, we, we love to be in the outdoors and hiking and camping and taking trucks off-road and whatnot. And, uh, and I know that outdoors is important to you, too. And one of the things that 
I want to give you a couple seconds here to talk about us. How are the elephants doing? The elephants are in tough shape. And for those of you who don't know, I, I started something called the Elephant Wisdom Project. I have a great passion for the environment and, and for wildlife. Uh, and I started the Elephant Wisdom Project because ele- elephants are dying at a rate that uh, they could be extinct in the wild within 10 years, maybe even sooner than that. There's about 96 a day that are, are killed either through poaching, uh, traps, hunting. Uh, so the population of the wild is, be- is being decimated. And our lives as humans actually depend on biodiversity. And if we have a world where elephants can't thrive, I don't think we're going to thrive much longer after that. And so what I've tried to do is begin to make a connection and give people a way to, to get some psychological distance. So we're close to all of our, our human stuff. Let's look out there. And for those of you who have kids or are thinking about kids, do you want to be the one who looks in, the, in that alphabet book when you get to the E's and say, oh, yeah, elephants, that's something we had when I was young, but they're gone now. Uh, as a way of pointing out, we have to pay attention not just to the human piece of things, but the the other species with which we share this planet. And as we look at all the flooding and the wildfires and the other things that are, that are happening these days, uh, humans aren't the only ones affected, but we are dependent in many ways on the life around us. And so I raise money for something called the Big Life Foundation that does work in Africa, particularly with elephants and with doing sustainable development there. But that's, that's just who I've chosen. I just think it, it's, a, it's important, and you know, Todd, because you're like the outdoors as well, that it's a, it's a privilege to be to be in nature, and it's really uh, it's psychologically healthy for us to be in nature. And if we want that to be there, we've got to take some take some action to make sure that we help preserve it, and that we're uh, we're doing our human thing in as smart a way as possible, and not thinking we can live on this planet all by ourselves. And I greatly appreciate you giving me a, a couple of minutes to talk about that. Oh, anytime. So I'm going to let you do one more. If you had the ability to talk to all the emergency managers at one time. What one thing would you like them to take away from this conversation? I think it comes down to the title of the book. And I don't mean that just to plug the book, but you're it. You are it. I think that our communities face more and more challenges. Uh, there's a lot of social stress but between severe weather and whatever's driving the active shooters and other folks who are doing bad things. Our communities look to you. You are it. And that's an awesome responsibility. And it's an awesome commitment that you have made. And um, I just hope that through this, through the book, through this conversation, through other, other work that I do and my colleagues do, that if we can help you be just a little bit better in your job, that's all I ask. That's, all, that's what I get out of this uh, because I am uh, – so grateful for the work that you do, and if we can help you do it just a little bit better and help you understand the leadership piece in more depth so you're more effective, that's all we ask for. And I would just like to say to everybody, thank you. Keep using your superpowers for good. How can they find your book, You're It? Um, you can find it at, at your local bookseller. You can find it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, if you want to find the, the choice of where to go, you a simple URL, which is www.bit.ly slash youritbook will take you to the publisher's page which has links to all the places you can buy it but as of June 11th it should be it'll be online you can order it now or um, in book in your favorite bookstore oh, yeah, audiobooks too that's uh, that's my favorite way because uh, of my crazy commute audiobooks as well absolutely 
Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on again. And, and uh, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to have you. And uh, I can't wait to run into you again. Todd, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in person. And thank you to all your listeners for, uh, for tuning into this. And uh, it's been great. <laughs>